Welcome to 50 Date Night Screams. I'm Amber Tresca. And I'm Mike Tresca. We're a married couple who decide to celebrate our 50th birthdays by watching some old movies. A lot of old movies. Join us as we watch 50 movies on our date nights and have fun dissecting them. As a bonus, each episode is accompanied by an original character I created and designed for use in your tabletop role-playing games. Many of the movies we watch are unrated, but this podcast is not. 50 Date Night Screams contains mature themes and is intended for adult audiences, so take care when listening. Plus, there are spoilers. Check the show notes to see where you can watch this movie before you listen. We're glad you're here. Have a seat, grab a glass of your favorite beverage, and get ready to scream along with us. Certainly is a beauty. Tierra Buddha is one of the finest rubies in the world, Mr. Bentley. How come this Buddha sheds red tears? Just to be more exclusive, I suppose? It is part of an ancient legend. <laughs> well, my firm's going to shed tears when they find out what I paid for it. Hello, and welcome to episode 32 of 50 Date Night Screams. I'm Amber Tresca. I'm here with my co-host and husband, Mike Tresca. Mike What's good? Uh, I'm 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 ready to start screaming in the now. I don't know if I'm going to scream in the night. I think I screamed while watching this film, but I'm ready to scream. Let's do it. Yeah, you know this was not a long movie, and the plot was pretty linear. So on the one hand, I felt like maybe there's not a lot to say about it, but on the other hand, I kind of want to bitch about it. So okay. <laughs> This is episode 32, A Scream in the Night, from 1935. We're going to start out with some content warnings. Usually we remember this. We are not experts in content warnings, so we're doing the best that we can. I am going to say, in this movie, there is racism and racial slurs. That is probably the most pronounced content warning. There is violence, there is kidnapping, there is domestic violence, and there is misogyny. Mike, do you have anything else to add? Do you think I missed anything? No, I think you added stuff. I don't remember half those, so I'm going to go with, yep, that sounds like you covered it. <laughs> this movie's uh, transfer or whatever was not great, and the audio was challenging too, so there was a lot of different there were, this movie has lots of challenges, but one of them was just sort of discerning what's going on. So I know you've seen this a few times. Hopefully you caught stuff I didn't. Probably not. But I did put in the notes where those problems did crop up. Uh, and I watched it. Okay, first we watched it together on the CD set. I watched it a few more times on the YouTubes via two different channels that had the movie uploaded. And neither one of them really solved the problems mm. that were there. So um, I don't know. Just like I do with my writing, it's like you don't try to solve that. You just point out that the problem is there because there's really nothing else that you can do. <laughs> All right. Let's go over the stats for this movie. The title is A Scream in the Night. The year is 1935. It is black and white. I wish we had a different term. It's mostly white, the way this is washed out, this film. It's super washed out. It is, oh, I don't know what to say. It, it There is oversaturation in some yes, points. Yes, that's the right phrase, oversaturated. That might not be the right word, but that's what I'm going to go with. Okay, the director, Fred C. Neumeyer. It has a 4.3 out of 10. 
via IMDb. Generous. That is extremely generous. And I'm wondering <laughs> if that is because it is the Lon Chaney Jr. fans kind of inflating that a little bit. I think so. I shouldn't say inflating. It's an opinion. And people are welcome to theirs. Uh, but they are wrong. Okay. It is 58 <laughs> minutes long. All right. Are you ready to start talking about this movie, Mike? No, but let's do it anyway. All right. You can... As a good friend of ours says, I'm not ready, but I'm prepared. All right, so <laughs> the movie opens on the street. It is very loud. At many points, dear listener, I am going to complain about the sound in this movie because it is a bad, okay? This is louder than any street ever is. You see people in all sorts of dress, kind of looking... Middle Eastern. So we understand that the story is not taking place in the United States. It's taking part, taking place in some other part of the world. However, I do not know where that is. I don't think it is ever addressed in the movie. Some of the reviews said that it was perhaps Singapore. I do not know. There are two men. There is a presumably Middle Eastern man. And also, dear listener, I did not look up the ethnicity of all of the actors in this movie because it was not addressed in their profiles. And many of the actors are not even in IMDb or credited or mentioned. So as I stated in the beginnings, one of the content warnings uh, was racism. And probably some of these actors are white and they're playing Middle Eastern characters. I don't really know. But we have an actual person who is a white man in a regular suit and a Middle Eastern man because he's wearing a turban. And the Middle Eastern man sells a jewel called the Tear of Buddha to the white man. And his name is Mr. Bentley. They're talking. They agree they're going to keep this transaction private. But we see that someone is spying on them through a peephole. I don't know that we ever know who that is. Next scene, we're at a restaurant. The loud street noise continues. I would not be eating at this restaurant where there's so much loud street noise. There are three men at a table, and they're talking about a local criminal. His name is Johnny Fly. One of them is Lon Chaney Jr. He's a detective. The other man is his chief. And the third man is another detective, and his name is Wu Ting. They're looking for Johnny Fly, trying to track him down. First off, I have lots of questions about why these guys are here in a different country, looking for Johnny Fly, that's probably not their jurisdiction at all, but this is what's happening. And it's this is the beginning of so many questions, right? So first of all, where are they? Second, why are these sort of rando white dudes roaming around trying to track down Johnny Fly? And there's a, com there's a conversation with uh, Wu-Ting about why they can't. Like, he's like, you will stand out. He's very subtle about it, but he's like, you can't do what I do you will stand out. Um, and it's sort of an interesting comment because that comes in later as to disguises and stuff, but there's definitely this argument that they are the fish out of water. They are, the, they're not really the folks who are, A, the local law enforcement. They're obviously from somewhere else. And B, uh, they look different. They just, they, they're not even really trying to blend, near as I can tell. They just look like they're characters from another show who walk onto the set. So it's it's an interesting uh, situation and there's definitely a power dynamic at play as to who gets to tell who what to do right so there's also a little bit of this where the chief seems to have the local authorities at his beck and call 
um, to do things. So, you know, again, we're like, are these just Americans who showed up? Try uh, The image I got, and it, again, this, this is one of those films where you hallucinate and go, oh, that made sense in my head. They actually never said any of that. I assumed you have sort of an Interpol situation, right? You have a criminal who's internationally wanted and Americans tracked him to this city. Don't know which city it is, uh, but none of that's in the film. So sounds good in my head. Okay, but but is Interpol, do Americans work for Interpol? No, but I think the idea was like you could see because it's it's a cross country organization. Yeah. So that therefore there could be an American potentially doing that. But it, it, there's no explanation for why. Because they and the other thing is they're not really government agents. They act like police, right? They act like local. Yes. They don't act like do. spies or like they act like they're just police who happen to be in this other uh, jurisdiction that's outside of the country. So it's it's a very look. They're doing this for shorthand. Um, probably their audience was very much like the, all the other white guys, right? So they, I get why they're doing it, but it is one of those things when you take it out of context, you're like, I don't, why are they here? Are we just supposed to buy into this? Um, and yes, we are. So so at the next table, oh, I'm going to ask you though, Mike, really quick while I'm setting up the next scene, can you look up Interpol and when did when was that agency founded? Because maybe it wasn't even around in 1935. Yeah, it's a good but, question. And I don't know. I don't, you know, I said Interpol. That doesn't mean that they were Interpol, but. Yeah. And I don't know what other international agencies exist, but Interpol is the one that, that comes up. Right, right. 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 So we're still at this restaurant. At the next table is Mr. Bentley from the previous scene and his niece, Edith. So it turns out that Edith knows the detective, the detective whose name is Jack Wilson, being played by Lon Chaney Jr., so Jack Wilson and Edith sit at a table for a little while and flirt. So Mr. Bentley goes back to his room where he is attacked. He is strangled with a rope. It's a very weird way to go about doing crime or doing a murder. So Edith and Jack find him. He is alive, but he was robbed. So somebody stole some money and some jewelry. Jack immediately says, well, this must be Johnny Fly. They did not take, whoever this was that attacked Mr. Bentley, did not take the Tear of Buddha. And why? Because Edith has it for safekeeping. So now, the only thing that so far makes sense in this movie is that Jack Wilson and Mr. Bentley say, you know what, Edith, we're a little bit concerned about you holding on to this because that makes you a target for Johnny Fly because we know that he wants it. Can we talk about his rope attack? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely, because it was so bizarre. It, I, they don't call it a garrote, or gar, gar, I think that's the phrase. I don't know, you know that they it. ever name it at all. Well, they do. They call it a lanyard or a lariat. They call it a weird oh, phrase. Oh, right. But, no, they, don't they call it a lavalier? A lavalier, thank you, which is yeah, the which, weirdest. Uh, to me, being an audio, lavalier is a microphone, right. so it I was don't the understand. Weird... But it just sort of like, first of all, why? I don't understand why you'd use that weapon in particular. That's a, a interesting and sort of not Maybe it was choice. his skill set. I, I don't know. He has a knife. At different points, the knife comes up, and he doesn't use that. So it was it was a very – and by the way, as we'll find out, it's not super effective either. So there's just this very weird kind of threat. It's supposed to be a signature weapon, um, which comes up a lot. Like, oh, you know, because I think there's at one point, you know, maybe I've got a lavalier for you kind of thing. But other than that, it was just a very odd thing. And you don't actually totally see it. You see it sort of go around his neck, and we'll see it again one more time. Which makes it even weirder when you see it in action. But it's just a, a fascinating thing because, of course, you know, I'm thinking about the character down the road here uh, as a weapon. But 
man, that's inefficient. <laughs> and I think, I thought maybe this was a, a original uh, nod to the thuggy cult. You, you saw that in Indiana Jones in the second movie, that idea. But that's not the case here at all. So I don't know why they did it. Um, but other than give him something unique, I guess, that maybe wasn't bloody on screen. This is a surprisingly bloodless film in a lot of ways, even though there's lots of skullduggery. <laughs> skullduggery. Um, yeah, and maybe also because it is an ineffective weapon, strangling someone is difficult. It is not an easy thing to do. A person will pass out before you kill them, so you may mistakenly think that someone is dead when they are actually just passed out. So and it does kind of feed into the idea that Mr. Bentley is still alive when they find him. Right. But as far as weapons go, ineffective, maybe not the first choice. Although we might say that it is better than poison ice bullets, I suppose. Or, or darts or, from cigarette or holders. Or ice yeah. poison bullets. Yeah. All, um, all of those. I did my homework. Interpol was 1923. Right, 1923. Oh, interesting. So. But... Okay terrifyingly enough, it came under Nazi control in 1938. So I did not know that. So that was, that was quite, and it was, it was in the same, it's headquarters in the same building as the Gestapo in 1938. But still, this is a sweet spot. It's 1935. Right. Presumably the movie was made earlier. Yes, they could be Interpol. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We haven't had the depression yet. We haven't had World War II yet. Yes. So, all right. Keeping that in context. All right, moving on to the next scene where we are at a bar. And there are a bunch of people playing darts. They are all dressed in all manner of clothing or non-clothing. I don't know what to make of any of this. Um, one of the men throwing darts is, again, Lon Chaney Jr. Uh, what the what? Only this time, he is a different character. And that character's name is Butch Curtin. Who came up with that? I don't know. Butch <laughs> wears a vest with no shirt. He has a beard and he only has one eye. He also speaks with a guttural tone and he has an American accent. And he's constantly like rubbing his nose. He's very like, <laughs> he's kind of always hunched in like, it is a gesture he makes with his face and his hand that it's hard to replicate, but it's clear they this is like a parody of like a pirate put into another film um, to distinguish him, which will be important. But it is so fascinating because uh, he's hard to miss. He's really this like gravelly, growly, drunken, one-eyed, Popeye, vest-having, dart-throwing, knife-wielding bar owner. Really, really bizarre. Maybe just to be a complete 180 of the Jack Wilson character. I don't mm -hmm. know. Mm-hmm. All right, Butch owns this bar, apparently, and you see him interacting with some of the patrons. He pulls a knife on one of them. He gets angry with another man when that man says he doesn't speak English. So, great guy. All right, now Wu Ting comes in, and he is disguised as a merchant, and he comes in and specifically sits down next to Butch and talks him up. So, we're not really sure what's going on there. Next, we're at the rooms of Johnny Fly. And these rooms are either above the bar or behind the bar. I'm not really sure. Sometimes people are going behind a curtain. Sometimes they're going up steps. I don't know. It's perhaps an interdimensional plane, but whatever. <laughs> so he's, he had stolen the jewelry. So yes, he did attack Mr. Bentley. And he's giving some of this jewelry to a, a woman. 
who is with him. Her name is Mora. No last name. And we noticed that Johnny Fly is the waiter that was serving Edith and Jack earlier in the day. So that's important. Now, Johnny is frustrated because there are police everywhere outside of Bentley's rooms, and he did not get the tear of Buddha like he had tried to. And he and Mora are arguing because, of course they are. She starts yelling at him in French. I did not take the time to try to figure out what she said, but uh, she occasionally does slip into French when she's yelling at him. Now, one of Johnny's spies comes in and he says, I think there's police everywhere, even outside of the bar. Now, Butch comes by. He and Mora know one another, and they're, they're hugging. Seemed to be pretty platonic to me. And Johnny comes back in the room and threatens to kill Butch. Okay? But we learn that the two of them are working together. They're in cahoots. I need to Butch talk is... about this hug. <laughs> okay, all right. So let me get through. Butch is supposed to be on the lookout, I think, in the bar or in the street. But he's not very smart, and he's doing a poor job of being a lookout for Johnny Fly. All right, let's talk about the hug between Butch and Mora. There's just... It's just the the least sexy, most platonic, like, kind of wrestling. It's not even like a hug of passion. It's a very, uh, it's very weird because I'm not sure what Lon Chaney Jr.'s sort of history as a leading man is. Um, We're learning a lot because we saw him in Manfish. um, And he was very much a sort of gender neutral, you know, he's a male, but he really had no love interest. And, And in this one, he's got sort of something going on in the other role. But um, he's just, I don't know what's going on there. It it took me a while to actually realize it was, for Johnny's reaction to them not touching much was oversized from what we saw on the screen. I, I mean, obviously the plot was that they're supposed to be on-off lovers, some of some sort, or Johnny potentially- Johnny Amora? Yeah, or potentially in the, no, Johnny Amora for sure, but, but Butch and Mora, like he's in the running. Which is amazing because you're like, he is, Which is like, no. super gross, number one. <laughs> yeah. And two, like, doesn't seem like he's just seems like a bumbling slob. And his the weird hugging, like, is, I guess, meant to convey this passion <laughs> that Johnny gets enraged about. And it just comes off as awkward. It so, just looks like two friends that haven't seen each other in a while. And are hugging. That's but all that's it like a, like. It's like a long, prolonged hug on a couch, too. Like, there's no... Basically, what happened was there should have been a kiss, and there wasn't. And yeah, somebody no made kiss. a decision to not do that, because it was odd that it didn't happen if that was what we were supposed to convey. Because I had to walk that back in my mind. I was like, wait a minute. Why is Johnny so upset? This is like a weird, like... He was just, like, holding her. Um, and there wasn't yeah. even... I was waiting for, like, the, oh, she fell into my arms thing, which would, frankly, be more believable. But no, no that, was... that's that's what happens though. I didn't put it in the notes because it's not important. Oh yeah, to the plot. <laughs> but Johnny Fly says, "Oh, were you getting a cinder out of her eye?" Yeah, and he's like, he's like, yeah, yeah, that's what I was doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he's like looking at her eye and like doing that. I guess I it suppose was supposed for to last. be funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's supposed to be funny. It was terrible. It it just looked like Mora. Look, she is in a bad situation with Johnny Fly. He's clearly got issues and he does not treat her well and it just seems like butch is not 
a nice person either. He's also a criminal, but it seems like perhaps he was someone that she could lean on. And then that was the extent of it. But Johnny takes offense. Yeah. And this is another one of those films where they, you know, they want to tell you crime doesn't pay by showing how the criminals constantly backstab each other. Um, Johnny can't trust Mora. Butch is not smart enough to understand who he can trust. Uh, Mora will play them both against each other to the extent that it suits her for sure. I mean, what's interesting, too, and, and I, the character Wu Ting and as well as more, they are strong characters. They, unfortunately, are often sort of sidelined by the main characters, but they're not slouches. You know, Wu Ting is somebody who knows his territory, is doing a good job, um, tells them the business of, as you know, presumably some kind of law enforcement that he's supposed to be. Uh, Mora is no slouch either. She definitely is ready to steal stuff right out of Johnny's pockets in some cases, and there's a lot of, like... Did you steal? I steal. I let you have this gem. You can have that gem kind of thing. Um, and she's she's tough. So it's interesting because the characters, I think, it, probably in an attempt for the movie to make them more villainous, uh, made them, uh, you know, people who I think could hold their own. It's just how they interact on screen is sloppy. And uh, one of them was Mora's affections for Butch, which just di- was not particularly convincing. Uh, and Butch was weirdly kind of interested in her, but didn't feel like it most of the time anyway, even the, the moat in her eye joke. Um, so it was just, it, it, this is one of those things where I think the plot called for something that the actors didn't or weren't willing to do, unfortunately. Well, it really wasn't set up yeah. uh, very well. And for women, having a male friend who is not interested or you're not interested in one another sexually offers some psychological safety so like perhaps that was what she was getting from butch but johnny just immediately flew off the handle even though he didn't seem to want mora but he doesn't want anyone else to have her either right and he's weirdly too his his chemistry the actor of so johnny does a lot by the way we think he's italian so this is sort of a potentially italian villain again but not a stereotype as much, right? Not as the one we've seen in the past, which was our, I forgot what his name was, but he was super kind of awful. Um, this character is, is competent. Uh, I wouldn't say com- he does weird things, but he, he's, he's definitely, you know, not meant to be look like a moron. He's trying. I mean, it, ultimately I think his approach is terrible, but, uh, it is interesting too, because even that character, he's meant to be this sort of abusive, I guess, assassin, uh, who takes things in his own hands. What's always interesting, too, is Johnny's surprisingly personally involved with a lot of stuff. He's on screen a lot. Um, I, I think he's set up as this mastermind, kind of, who comes into town and, and has all these spies and cronies and stuff. But he's really not very... He's super... Like, you know, he's the waiter in the room. He's he's very involved. Um, so I, I guess he doesn't do as much dirty work as you suspect. And Butch is a huge part of that. Uh, and it's all him constantly telling Butch what a moron he is and you go do stuff. Johnny recognized Wu Ting from the restaurant earlier in the day, and he sends Butch off to, quote, deal with him. And supposedly Butch interprets that in whatever way that he does. Now, this is one of the points in the movie where it is too dark to see what's going on on either the version on the DVD that we watched or on the one of several YouTube streaming versions that I watched. You just hear a lot of street noise and what you interpret is that people have found Wu Ting's body. Jack and his chief come to the scene, and it appears that Wu Ting 
drew something, maybe in the street. It's unclear to me where they saw this drawing, but the drawing is like a circle with a dot in the middle and then another line next to that. Okay, yeah. you do get a brief glimpse of it, but I'm not sure what it's exactly I th- drawn on. I think it's supposed to be an eye. I think. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So... <laughs> All right. Edith leaves the hotel, and she has a security person now. But they leave the hotel in different rickshaws, and of course they get separated in the street. Of course, Edith is kidnapped by Johnny. All right, Johnny now has Edith, and he has the chair of Buddha. Him and Mora are getting into it again, and he tells uh, Mora that Edith is better looking than her, and Mora loses her shit. Mora storms off, and then Butch shows up. He's looking to get another assignment from Johnny. And so what I want to talk about for a moment here is the way that Johnny kind of skillfully pits Edith and Mora against one another, which is kind of stupid. Edith is a victim of a crime. Mora is supposedly the girlfriend. Mora is a brunette. Edith is a blonde. And this is a thing that we see quite often in these early films about two women being pitted against each other over a man who is not worth the dirt on either one of their shoes. Yeah, and this is an ongoing sort of uh, shorthand, right? So the blonde is the good girl. The brunette is the bad girl. Um, Very often it's implied that they are, the, the brunette's a prostitute of some sort. We don't always know what their sort of situation is but there's a lot of implications that happened in one of the other films is sort of like the idea that they're being they're either allowing to be passed around or being passed around some kind of relationship that's sexual with the other men um so they're they're sort of in the wind they're not necessarily clearly identified to any one person however the men use violence or threats to establish that right so in other words they're sort of a little bit of a free agent but the men demand that they not be Right. And, and this goes with Johnny. Right. So Johnny is sort of a little bit like, you know, do what you want, but don't you dare do it with him, him or him kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely a thing. The other thing is that, uh, you know, a lot of times these uh, leading women were eye candy uh, and the camera definitely lingers on Edith, sort of her <laughs> perfectly made up reclining and unconscious and the camera sort of scrolls up and down her form a few times so uh you know uh noted uh message received there is definitely the assumption here that you are supposed to view her as sort of desirable but also um the good one right that's the idea that edith is and and he is an interesting character i mean we didn't talk about her too much but she she doesn't come off as a damsel. She seems pretty like her. Was it her uncle she's with? That's her uncle, right? Who has yes, a, it's her uncle. Yeah, he's, you know, she's like, I'll take the, she's never at one point, oh, I shouldn't have the jewel. And she's certainly never like, oh, gosh, I'm in trouble. I mean, we, we were laughing because we've seen films where they like, you know, the mere association with a thing endangered the damsel in distress. And she does, she takes that just fine. I mean, she realizes she should put it in the bank, but she's really not particularly um, freaking out in a way that you would think uh, some of the other characters do. So she she's sort of an interesting um, foil to some of the bad guys. But she unfortunately doesn't get a lot of opportunity to do much other than sort of get captured up to that point. So it's, it's sort of an interesting point because she's she could have been more. She could have been a Sue Walker. Didn't work Jeez. out. <laughs> All right. 
Have you ever been shot in the head? No. I, I've been knifed, though. Oh. I thought possibly somebody had blown your brains out. Wait a minute. Listen, you ape. Your harmless Chinese peddler was having tea this afternoon at the hotel with the two American detectives. Oh. So the dirty little rat lied to me then, huh? Well, I suppose you know what to do with uh, liars. <laughs> sure I do. Get busy. It'll be a pleasure. Jack and his chief figure out that, yes, Wu Ting did draw an eye before he died. Two eyes, as a matter of fact, or one eye and the omission of an eye. Uh, but just then, Mr. Bentley calls and he says, Edith has been gone for too long. She was just supposed to go to the bank and come back, and now he is worried. So Edith's security guards show up. They explain what happened and that they lost her. Okay, so now Edith has figured it out. Johnny's the waiter. Johnny's Johnny Fly. She demands to be let go. Johnny refuses, and she slaps him. So, yes, she is not the stereotypical damsel in distress. Jack is out questioning people. He's in the street again. He's going to pawn shops to see if he can find where some of the stolen jewelry might have ended up. Who does he come across but Butch? Butch is not smart enough to lie effectively, so he's acting funny. And he's lying about stuff that doesn't really have any consequence. And presumably, although it is never, I think, outright said, they realize about the one-eye situation, and so they arrest him. Now, in the next scene, we see Jack and Butch talking, and they're in a split screen. And both of us, as the first time we were watching this movie, we are... I think it took us a hot minute, but we recognize that the, both of these characters are being played by Lon Chaney Jr. So in this scene, Jack is putting on a disguise so that he looks like Butch, which means putting on a beard, putting on a prosthetic to cover his right eye because Butch at some point was stabbed in that eye and now has a scar. And we were a little taken aback at the at the technology of the split screen and that it was used in this time. And so I just took a hot minute to look it up before we decided to record. And that idea of the split screen was around for for several decades oh, wow. before this. Although this is the first that we are seeing in this series of films that we know of. People were using it in quite creative ways, even in the 1800s they were. But a lot of times it required the use of um, I think like, uh, you know, more than one projector, that type of a thing to be able to use it in the theater. So it wasn't used too often. I don't know practically how they did it here, but even though the transfer was pretty bad, it was pretty seamless. You didn't really see that there was a split screen here. So that part was pretty impressive and probably the one redeeming quality about this film. <laughs> Aww. Jack takes butch's clothes and butch refuses so they hold him down and strip him and jack makes butch talk and say things so that he can imitate his voice and his inflection so butch continues to insist that he does not know johnny fly and they lock him up and sayonara butch that is the end of him for the rest of the movie all right we go back to edith and mora mora is accusing edith of trying to steal Johnny. 
very bizarre, bad romance, strange relationship going on between Johnny and Mora. Edith says, I only care about escaping. Why don't you help me? And the two of them end up fighting, get into a scuffle. Johnny comes in and breaks it up. Now, at this point, Jack goes back to the bar, now dressed as Butch. The staff kind of picks up that something is a little odd with Dear Butch. Uh, but Mora, again, pops up and beckons him into the back of the bar. Because again, Johnny's where Johnny and Mora are staying is some interdimensional plane that is somewhere <laughs> near the bar. Um, so Butch goes back and meets up with Mora. Mora says, listen, Johnny beat me up and it's because of that white girl. Found that interesting that she used those words. All right. So now Johnny shows up and he is questioning Jack slash Butch. The actual Butch does not appear for the rest of this film. So it is always Jack as Butch. Then Johnny starts to tell everybody that he needs to leave. He's got to go. He goes into a back room with a man from the pawn shop and tries to sell him the tear of Buddha. Mora takes that opportunity to flirt with Butch, all right, and try to get him to get rid of Edith. But Johnny interrupts them. So now Jack slash Butch knows the entire deal. So Johnny gives Jack slash Butch his next assignment. He says, go and kill that pawn shop guy and take back the tear of Buddha. Jack does so, jumps the guy. It's a little rough with him, as far as I'm concerned. And he says, listen, I'm doing you a favor. Play dead, but give me the tear of Buddha. And the pawn shop dude does just that, inexplicably. All right. Now we see there are police in the street. They're closing in on Johnny's location. So they are maybe perhaps not entirely useless. And now I'm going to say, the rest of the movie, remember this is only a 58-minute long movie in the first place, the rest of this is in five minutes. Okay, so how are we going to wrap up everything that we just described but in five minutes? Before we do the five-minute sprint, I don't know. So Johnny's tactics here are interesting. I think the idea... They are. ...is that he's going to steal... He's basically going to go from maybe village to village, town to town, city to city, trying to sell this Tears of Buddha. One of the biggest problems, anyone... They, they, they make a comment, right? They're like, that Tears of Buddha from that broken-down Raja. Um, yeah. That, so... One of the issues is anything this famous, where it's got a name, is hard to pawn. Correct. So it's fascinating that he basically is like, I found a guy, let's kill him, steal the money, and I presume his plan was to leave that night and sort of run off and I guess do it again. I don't understand, but this does not seem a recipe for success because very quickly, no one's going to want to buy it from him in the next port. Um, and I don't know what his plan was. He was sort of self-destructing at this point. It was a very odd choice that I'm not even sure it necessarily adds to the movie either. Like, I don't know why they made this choice for him to try and murder that guy. He could just as easily have sold it and it would have been this. Other than, I guess, it keeps it it keeps the jewel in the plot, right? It, it, it keeps it from leaving the, the scene of the, you know, the the basic plot of the movie. But still, even then, I think there's ways you could have done it because this was a very odd way to do it which was essentially have Johnny be a really bad criminal and make enemies of people who I would think his whole goal would be to get that thing and sell it immediately and then leave town. No, he wanted his cake and eat it too. 
I also don't understand Jack's behavior at this point. The first watch, I wasn't really picking it up. But in the second watch, I was like, he did not have to do any of this. Johnny didn't really seem to have anybody else around. He could have apprehended him right then and there. Chose not to. Chose instead to attack a person who was, I mean, maybe not innocent. He was a fence. But even so, didn't do anything for which he should be knocked out and told to lay down on the ground and play dead. Very, very bizarre and not at all the behavior that you would hope from and uh, an Interpol question mark <laughs> Maybe? agent. Maybe? It is one of those things. There's so many plot holes. You like miss the other ones because you're like, I'm so focused on that thing. You're right. I don't, why don't you know why you hit that guy or went through all that facade? <laughs> but whatever. Did not have to do such a thing. Okay. So Jack slash Butch goes back to Johnny and Johnny says, give me the jewels. Give me the money you have. Even give me all of your money. Okay, so just now he's just like, like you said, self-destructing. I don't know. Like, what could Butch have had on him? Right? right. I have no idea. You know, could have had some whiskey in his pocket. I have no idea. All right. Then he says, all right, now, uh, Butch, get out of here. Mora has figured it out that it is Jack impersonating Butch. And she tells Johnny Fly. So Mora is just, woo, self preservation streak a mile long in her meanwhile butch slash jack finds edith and tries to help her escape again not really sure why the lasso comes back johnny lassos jack slash butch and tries to strangle him okay here comes edith she attacks johnny and jack gets free So, score one for Edith. Now, the film speeds up. Maybe that's why it only takes five minutes to get through the rest of this. (laughs) So, notably so. Once again, I don't know how practically they do this, but you recognize it right away. So, Johnny and Jack are scuffling. And now, Edith and Mora are getting into it. And I'm not sure that we've seen this before. I'm not sure we've seen two women fighting like this before. Was interesting. Mora opens a drawer and pulls out a gun. (laughs) Why nobody went for the gun prior to this, I have no idea. Let's try strangling people instead of shooting them. Don't really understand. And Edith grabs her arm and the gun fires into the ceiling. Now, remember the name of this movie is called A Scream in the Night. Edith does scream at that point quite convincingly. So I am assuming that this is... Why the film was named as it was. Johnny's henchmen hear the shot. They hear the commotion. They come in. They try to help. But Jack subdues one of them. And the police show up and shoot another one of them who's on the stairs on the way up. But this room is also in the back of the bar. But up some steps. Interdimensional plane. (laughs) All right. And now Jack knocks out Johnny. Edith knocks out Mora. It is off camera. You don't really see it. I wonder if that was a product of the fact that it's a poverty roll film. You're just getting it done. Or if it had to do with you don't actually want to see a woman hit another woman hard enough to knock her out. Or that you don't want to see a woman fall down knocked out. They didn't have a stunt person. Whatever the situation was. 
it was probably the third time that I watched that scene that I was like, oh, that's what happened to Mora because I didn't know. I was like, did she just take off? Who would blame her? I would not blame her for beating feet with the gun. But Edith, Edith knocks her out. Now the police come in. They arrest everyone. Jack and Edith kiss. And the chief watches them do so in a very weird, salacious, voyeuristic way. The end. What do you got, Mike? I think that's the appropriate way. The the sexual dynamics of whatever's going on in this whole film are very odd. The the relationships are very odd. It just feels disjointed. There's a lot of things that just seems like they got cut, honestly, uh, in the interest of time that didn't establish. um, Butch is a character for sure, and he gets a lot of screen time. But he's almost got too much screen time because in some ways you're like, I'm not sure this is important. Johnny gets some, but actually not as much as Butch, it feels like. And there's a lot of sort of dialogue that doesn't necessarily go places. A lot of sort of threatening and a lot of, like you know, watching Butch be a drunk owner who they sort of imply he's, you know, he's a dangerous man against people who cross him. But he's pretty much a good natured goof most of the time if you get him drunk. Um, but that doesn't really come up. Like, there's a lot of that kind of like, I don't know why they established that character trait. Um, you know, Johnny implodes, as I said, because he starts getting really anxious about everybody, um, including Jack as Butch, you know, essentially assuming he's going to be double-crossed. But, you know, what does he expect? He doesn't seem to have anybody loyal to him, and he doesn't seem to be in any way treat anyone well. Uh, it's not like he's they show him paying someone off or agreeing to anything. The one guy who agrees to buy the tier of Buddha off of him, he tries to have executed. So there's just really this strange kind of gaps in in sort of what the plan was for Johnny that I suspect probably had some plot that didn't make it into the movie because it's an hour. It's short. Um, And this does feel like, you know, a long Cheney Jr. vehicle to demonstrate his acting as multiple characters against himself. That's what it feels like. It doesn't feel like it's really anything more than that. It's pretty flimsy. Right. And usually the purpose of these films was, yes, creativity and to make some art, but they usually also had another purpose. And this film in particular was not released until many years after it was filmed. It was kind of a bizarre situation. It was only an hour long. It had multiple sets. The street scenes, there were an awful lot of people. I have no idea where they filmed it. I could not ascertain that from the information that I found about it. We don't know where it supposedly took place, where it was supposed to take place, or if it's just supposed to be generic Middle Eastern port. The actor who played Johnny, now, you know, all of the acting was actually pretty good, except for, I would say, the extras that were in the bar and on on the street. Lon Chaney Jr. does a does a pretty good job. That's not easy to do two characters, but one is a handsome policeman and the other one is a the you know, opposite. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the, like the the total like polar, the, the bizarro opposite, world low version. Rent, of- <laughs> yeah, criminal. So the you know Johnny Fly he oozes onto the screen every time. Good looking actor, like. 
would have liked to see more, would have liked to see that character do more and be smarter. Now, it is not unusual for, at least in the movies, uh, we were just watching something the other night, Mike, where the characters did this, that they decide that they're going to close the loop on the whole situation and they're going to kill everybody that has some connection or interaction with them. So the fact that he wanted to kill the fence didn't really surprise me, but it was interesting to me that he was sending Butch off to do it and then presumably was going to uh, do something to Butch as well. But I don't know how he thought he was going to get away with all of this when they were the police were really close to coming to get him and he had Edith there. He would have had to kill her as well and possibly also Mora because Mora would have turned, you know, uh, turncoat on him like she did <laughs> several times in the movie already. So she would have done so easily. So yeah, what some of the motivations were, it's just the movie was too short for us to understand where these characters came from or where they were going or what some of their motivations were. It also spent a lot of time watching Butch have two games of darts with the bar patrons and a very loud parrot. <laughs> Which I is mean, a person. The sound going, in this movie. The person was, going, you suck. You suck. It was awful. It was very difficult for me to listen to and being sensitive to, to sound. So whomever was putting that all together, um, yeah, zero stars for you. Okay. Ouch. <laughs> All right, I think it's time for the big question, <laughs> which is, is this a horror movie or is it something else? No, it's just a horrible movie. It's just a horrible movie. It's just a horrible movie. Yeah. And this movie did not come with a hilarious tagline on any of the posters or other materials that I found, but my own... <laughs> My own hilarious tagline would be that the real villain is colonialism. So, <laughs> uh, uh, maybe we'll use that and maybe we won't. <laughs> now we're going to give this movie some ratings. It is our own homegrown rating system, which we love so much. And that is between zero and five knives, glasses of wine, and screams. We will start with knives, and this includes the body count. How scary was it? How gory was it? Did it live up to its title? Those are the factors that go into our knife scoring. Between zero and five knives, Mike, what do you think? Oh, man. So this is um, this is like one of the worst. I feel like we have to have worst criminal hall of fame. There's a Van Marek and a couple of the guys who just don't know what they're doing. I don't know. For all the supposed murders, right, that he's known for. Uh, Johnny Fly only murders one person, and it has someone else killed. You know, Butch does it, does the other one. Well, actually, no, Johnny Fly never he, murders anybody. He doesn't murder he anyone. He tried, and he didn't succeed. So, you know, we just, I don't know. And then that, what's interesting is is uh, Wu Ting, I think, um, sort of dies off screen, which is interesting and, and odd, given how much the film well, I wants don't to talk know. about that. You can't see what happens. Oh, yeah. Maybe we saw it and didn't know. Maybe it I happened on know. screen. Yeah. The screen was very dark. Could not yeah. tell what was happening. So, I mean, there is definitely a lot of um, domestic violence in this uh, that makes it disturbing. It, it's he's Johnny is not a nice person. 
Mara is not a nice person either, frankly. And she does not put up with a lot. And frankly, the only way Johnny, quote, keeps her in line, according to Johnny, is to abuse her. I mean, you know, and she sort of sticks around partially, they imply, because she she wants a cut. So I'm not going to say this is, you know, sort of a completely bloodless film in in the sense that there's definitely violence, even if there's not death. Uh, And it's unpleasant. You know, uh, Butch's situation is just sad. Wu-Ting, who seems like the only sane person of this group, who's not sort of this smug police come in kind of thing uh, is, you know, is a victim. So uh, I'm going to give it one and a half knives. I'll give it one and a half. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, I fucking hated this movie. <laughs> Wait, we're at <laughs> knives. Hold on. <laughs> it's just knives. Don't get it. I, I, I gotta let it out. I, I gotta let it out. Um, point five. Point five knives. Knife handle. Not, not half a handle. That's what it gets. <laughs> well, the That's what it gets is, because... There's a knife in the handle. So if you take half of it, it's a handle. <laughs> Are you saying it's supposed to be the tip? Yeah, well, maybe. Point five is the tip? <laughs> Just the tip. Okay, all right. No, um, the movie was called A Scream in the Night. There was a scream in the night. Literally, that's the only metric that it met for knives. So, point five. All right, moving on to glasses of wine, and this has to do with how much we enjoyed it. Was it fun to watch? Did it have any unique moments? Mike, how many glasses of wine do you have for a screen well, at night? I know what I'm up against here. You should probably threw your glass. Um, I, I'll say that the, the split screen thing was interesting. Um, Lon Chaney Jr. does, I thought, a pretty good job. I mean, look, his characters were skewed in such a way to be so different that, you know. Not a big lift. I, yeah. It was, yeah, it was exactly. I felt Mora was a strong character. Edith was a strong character. So there were some pieces that I was surprised by uh, from films of this era. It is 1935, so it, but it was released later, right? So th- this is Correct. pre-code, but a little bit uh, on the bubble. So in terms of how much I enjoyed it, part of the problem is I couldn't see what the hell's going on. Uh, I couldn't, as you mentioned, there's so much street noise that just plays over and over. The friggin' parrot is awful. So I'll give it one, one glass. Yeah. I am going to give it 0.5, half a glass of wine. (laughs) That is for the split screen. I will consider the character of Edith in the next rating, (laughs) but I have to point out that Edith and Mora were pitted against each other Mm -hmm. over men. Not great. And Edith tried to appeal to Mora, she did everything short of saying, help a sister out. Right. And yeah. Mora was like, no way. Which also didn't make a lot of sense. Because Mora could have gotten rid of Edith, really could have let her out a door, out of the interdimensional plane, and <laughs> said, she knocked me out and escaped, something like that. They already had the jewel. They did not need Edith. They were not ransoming her there was no plan or discussion of doing so so it made no sense they just had the two of them there to fight over johnny or butch or whatever other man who was not worth fighting over so no and i don't know if we mentioned this but morris sort of figures out that butch isn't is johnny right she and she's the one and it's weird because i don't know where that comes from no she figures out that butch is jack jack i'm sorry i'm saying johnny yeah which is jack but there's no reveal or explanation. She just is like, don't you know, you dumb, dumb? That's obviously a cop. And he's like, no. <laughs> yeah. And Johnny's then they fight. 
bad at everything. Yeah, oh. and that's it. And at that point, Johnny also could have, you know, play acted a little bit or whatever, and he didn't. It was just like they just they just well they had to get the movie over. They had yeah. five minutes left <laughs> and speed it up <laughs> and speed and speed it up. Yeah. All right, and our last rating is Screams. Screams is the overall rating. It does not have to be an average of knives and wine. Mike, how many screams are you going to give a scream in the night? I, I didn't hate this movie as much as you did, um, but I didn't. It's rare. I know this is bizarre. This is talk about bizarre world. This is we're we're flipping roles here. Usually, um, I, I, it's hard to love. I'll give you that. I mean, uh, but I there was enough in here that was different, certainly from the other films in the context that I felt like you know it was. If it just wasn't so hard to watch, I probably would have appreciated it a little more. So I'll give it one. Yeah, I'm going to agree with one because that they they tried some things. But gosh, you know, the racial slurs and all of that, like that, that was hard. And if you because the sound quality is so poor, it may be difficult to pick up. But when you watch this movie two or three times, you hear them and... It's unnecessary and was difficult. So I'm only going to give it one scream. I hated this movie. And uh, <laughs> that's, we're just going to, we're just going to leave it at that, I think. Mike, you created a character based on this film that is for use in tabletop role-playing games. Why don't you tell me a little bit about this character? We're starting to get into territory where the more these films aren't horror films, the more challenging it becomes to easily translate them into sort of a D&D villain scenario. So I start to lose my mind. And what that means is I start to just be like, well, I'm going to take one element of this character and go with it and make it fantastical and interesting because it's interesting to me. It's probably the first thing I thought of when I heard about the character. And I want to have some fun with him. So here's the first thing. This movie never explains why Johnny is known as the fly. Why is he Johnny? I guess it's because he's fly like... Because he flies away? Or because he's is he's fly? Like, like, was that a phrase in the 1930s? Because he's I don't fly? He's pretty fly? I don't, I don't so think I don't know. So. But it doesn't matter because I've decided Johnny's an actual fly. So he's he's the fly. He's actually uh, taking from the movie The Fly. Uh, he is a, a halfling, which I like the idea of this short, this little guy because he has little guy energy. Johnny does, and he's um he's basically this uh, strangler who threw uh, and he was running a uh, sort of a, a a smuggling ring for two warlocks, and he was supposed to run something called the Tear of Kerberos between one warlock to another warlock, and uh, he realized that he was probably going to be executed at the end of this. So he uses a teleportation circle and he has the eye of Kerberos with him and it warps him into this fly thing um, that gives him powers over flies. And he is literally an actual half, half half, half, half fly, half person. And um, so now he's on the quest. So the other thing is the gemstone gets teleported away and he is on a mission to get it back because he's convinced that will let him turn back to a normal person again. So uh, it sets up the broadest strokes of uh, the movie. It gives better motivation than I'm greedy and stupid and I need, you know, this gemstone. And uh, I think makes him an interesting character where he's he's literally this really gross, super disgusting kind of uh, underworld villain 
that's probably only engaged in the seediest jobs and, and sort of situations, but has a motivation. He's a little tragic and really wants that Eye of Kerberos back. Um, and it, and I've, I've written in there because I have a whole infernal hierarchy that there's a demon behind it, and he's probably got to do some pretty unpleasant things to make that demon happy before he'll get his uh, body back. But um, I do like the idea of giving him a motivation to go after the, the uh, tier of Kerberos, and that that's something that the PCs could easily find in a treasure. And then have Johnny fly, Johnny the fly, hunting them. So, all right, he's a halfling. Mm-hmm. Is that all right? So is he a werefly? Or I'm a little bit confused yeah, about no. what exactly. I'm trying to paint a mental picture yeah, for Yeah, this myself. is not a werewasp. This, he is part fly. So he's he's uh, Brundle, if you remember Brundlefly from The Fly, I the remake. I very much remember <laughs> Brundle. <laughs> Forget that. Um, from, the, from the Jeff Goldblum the Jeff Goldblum of The Fly. You will, Jeff Goldblum, you will always be my fly. But um, he's very much that character. Yeah, so he is. That's exactly what he is. He is a half fly. That's part of why he doesn't want to be that way, is uh, he's stuck that way. He doesn't turn into it. He's he's a fly. Um, and he has fly powers. He has fly. He can jump. He can. He actually doesn't have wings, which makes it problematic for him, but he can cling to walls. And he, uh, he has power over flies, which, of course, ends up he's in dumps and, and really... Uh, areas of garbage where he can use them as spies or harass people. Um, he has giant flies he can summon. So he's he's all in on the fly theme, for sure. Yeah, and because he is part fly, I imagine that he could be anywhere because flies are everywhere. So you could drop him in. You could drop him in almost anywhere, I would think. Yeah, he totally can be. I mean, he's he's certainly the kind of villain that probably is mobile and sets up town in the local trash heap. Um, he's kind of a jab of the hut little bit the character. Local trash heap. Yeah. Well, you know, if you've got a village, you probably have a cesspit or something, you know, so he's oh, that kind of guy, like, right? Like everywhere. Yeah. Garbage is everywhere because people make garbage. That's right. Um, he does have villains he uses that can strangle you with growth. So he, he specializes in that. So whatever that, <laughs> I, I, what is it? I keep, what, what do they call it again? The lavalier? A lavalier. <laughs> That's not what we call it because we're going to use It's a lasso. It's a rope lasso. Yeah. And not even like an interesting looking rope or even a rope that is an actual lasso because that tends to be a thicker, stiffer type of rope. It just looked like, I don't know, a rope that maybe they got off one of the grips. <laughs> I don't know. I know. It also looks like a very new rope and like the least dangerous. It looks very thin. You're like, is this going to hurt anybody? You use that for crocheting. I don't know. Um, but anyway, yeah. Crocheting. <laughs> yeah. They're going to make a fishing net out yeah. of it later. Yeah. Um, did you know what a group of flies is called? I have no idea. They're called a business. Oh, yeah. So, interesting. So Johnny Fly has a, a a legendary action called "Call the Business," and it summons giant flies, which I just enjoy that for stupid reasons. But um, yeah, he he has all these really cool things that he can do. He can he can summon an insect swarm. Um, he can do a lot of this stuff, but he can be found just about anywhere uh, where he thinks the the tier of Kerberos is. So um, he's pretty mobile. And uh, that's interesting. A lot of times these villains are very much sort of, you know, either come in for a certain reason. Uh, he's single-mindedly on the quest for this gem, which, by the way, if you know your local murder hobos in a and d game, the odds of them having this gemstone in their possession is actually pretty high. Um, so it's sort of interesting because I imagine it's one of those gems that's probably not particularly noteworthy to other people, but would be very important to him. So you may just be like, I don't know, it looks just like a ruby. I got 12 rubies. But right. one of them has this background, and then Johnny Fly shows up. And what about these two warlocks? Do they appear anywhere else, or can they come back into the situation? Yeah, that's a good. It's a good question. So um, 
he actually destroyed one of them. He strangled them, um, which sort of gave him his reputation as a strangler. That was one of his specialties. I'm sorry. That is a very boring end for a warlock. I don't get all <laughs> offended because you happen to know other warlocks. The other one is still out in the wind. So he was supposed to deliver two, right? He was taking from one to the other. So the other one's probably uh, hunting him. I don't flesh him out much, um, but absolutely that's an angle that you could pursue. Or it could be a PC warlock, frankly. Or do we have any other warlocks in this series of 50 NPCs? We do. Uh, Queen Pua is one. Um, mm-hmm. There's a couple others. Uh, so, yeah, th- you're right. There's actually other uh, warlock. Other, I never even thought of that. So that's a really good angle. So but any of the other ones. there. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I also imagine that a clever DM could make all sorts of puns having to do with business. <laughs> Give him the business. Give him the business. We're gonna we're gonna give him the business. That type of thing. Uh considering did you include that somewhere in the description that a group of flies is called the business? No, it's called the, the it's called call the business and he magically summons one die four giant flies. So yeah, it's Giant flies is a thing. Giant flies have been in and out of D&D forever, but they were never part of the core rules. And, and in 5th edition, they were made part of the core rules. I don't know why somebody decided to add them. So I was pretty excited because, uh, you know, who doesn't need giant flies? But yeah, so Johnny Fly, um, who's, you know, he's a small guy. He's this sort of like seedy, salacious crumb kind of character. Uh, he's, he's pretty powerful. It's deceptive how much influence potentially he has, especially like you said, he has spies everywhere because he can see through his flies or hear through them. Um, and then he can, if he really gets trapped, he can even do the, my favorite part, puke on you. Um, nice. With the acid vomit. So, oh, boy. Now I'm remembering <laughs> the fly and all of that. Oh, my gosh. It's coming back. Yeah, once you see that, you never go back. Yeah. You, oh, you just can't forget it. <laughs> okay. So let me ask you this. I, I don't imagine that a half fly, half halfling being is very common Anywhere in any D and D scenario, how do people react when they see him? Is there a special thing that you have to go through when you see him that you are horrified? I know that's kind of a Ravenloft thing, but do you have that in there anywhere? No, he. Um, I mean, he's he's actually not that. I mean, he's disturbing, but he's not the kind of character that I think is going to be so horrific. You're gonna. I mean, look, he can actually spit flies out of his mouth, so that's probably disturbing. But um, he's more pathetic in some ways. Uh, I think he's he's uh, what's funny is I think the picture I use, he's kind of cute looking actually as a fly. He's got like he's fuzzy, you know. (laughs) Um, So he's he's not necessarily uh, he's horrifying, but he himself isn't necessarily meant to be uh, horrible. His situation sort of is right. So um, he's the kind of character, though, that probably never shows his face if he can help it. Right. If you see him, it's too late. Right. He's either going. He's. Uh, he's the kind of character who would the villain that would wait until he's 100 percent sure he can get his hands on that tear and then he move, makes his move. And that means middle of the night, absolutely when nobody was around, whatever circumstances, because he's going to have the time. He's got I mean, like you said, who notices flies flying around where he's, he's keeping track. So he definitely is the kind of character that when you see him, it's too late. And the flies coming out of the mouth brings to mind for me another very iconic movie and scene of the candy man with the bees yes yes coming out of the mouth yeah, yeah. he um yeah it's called insect gorge which he does nice. and it's just nasty but yeah i mean he's he i went all in he is gross he j- also can jump really high and he like i said he doesn't actually fly ironically but he can uh cling to walls so he's a little bit of a spider-man character who probably is hanging around in your attic uh or your castle for a while before he makes his move 
because he's waiting to see how he can get that that tier. But yeah, I, I love the idea of him really being attached to this specific item uh, in the belief that he's going to it's going to save him. And I don't think it will. I mean, between us DMs and everyone listening to the podcast, I think he's it's probably not that simple. Um, if he's indebted to a demon lord and and something magically twisted happened to him, uh, there's probably a pretty steep price to pay. Uh, Kerberos is Cerberus in my campaign, so that's the three-headed dog. And using Dante's Inferno in Hell, uh, which we call Infernus, is that's the, the circle of gluttony. So it's quite likely he's going to have to sacrifice a lot of gluttonous souls if he wants to get out of this. It's not going to be as simple as just getting the gemstone and being done with it. So that's fun too, because even if he does get the gem, uh, he may have to go after other characters to uh, sacrifice them potentially. But there's a lot. I mean, like you said, the other warlock is out there. Uh, The gemstone is out there. His indebtedness to the demon Lord is out there. So for a movie that I, you know, we both, I think thought was terrible, kind of an interesting character. Right. And I can see him popping up in a lot of different places and then also probably recurring throughout a campaign since he may not get what he wants even though he achieves a goal then the goalpost gets moved for him and he has to come back and do more things to jettison the fly part of him and become whole again so i think people are going to want to play this very interesting and versatile character where can they find it mike so we have quite a few different ways we release him. We certainly release him for free on patreon.com slash T-A-L-I-E-N, Italian. Um, as you're fond of pointing out, we recommend you can follow us for free. So if you join there, Patreon added an option where you can just follow along free, no cost. So you will get notified when he's released. We release one villain a week. That's 50 for those of you counting along at home. Um, and we will uh, both include this video talking about the character as well as the character sort of uh, first page about them. So that's... If you don't want to do anything else and you just want to follow along and be notified of new cool villains, that's the first way to do it. The second way is in Patreon itself. So if you actually decide to contribute a monthly fee, which can go from a dollar up to 10 um, monthly, we have different levels. And this is at the uh, $3 level. You'll get the product along with hundreds of dollars of other products, right? Even the the, the uh, tier one, $1 a month is going to get you $100 of products. So we have all kinds of great stuff in here. But if you contribute on the third level, you get this along with a bunch of other products. Um, and that's part of your, your uh, support and you get the entire PDF. And that includes, that's 5e foes, gothic villains. So that includes all 50 villains, as well as how they interconnect together. And some rules like using garrotes and fun stuff like that. So it includes uh, all their minions, all, all their special quirks, and how they uh, other ideas on how to use them, as well as all the information we have for every one of these villains. So th- that's certainly one other way. And then, of course, it's on DriveThruRPG. So if you don't want to do a Patreon at all, you just want to buy the product, you can do that on DriveThruRPG, uh, and that's available under our uh, Malintel Enterprises uh, imprint. So you'll find it there. And you can buy it online, and that's absolutely possible, too. So you have multiple ways to do it. Uh, Patreon, uh, for free. You'll get some of it for free. You'll get enough to be able to figure them out as how he works. But you get all the details if you get the drive through RPG version or if you get it on Patreon by increasing your support. So all those ways, plenty of opportunities. And, of course, we have social media as well. So um, we will share some of this uh, advertising, usually his stats, on Instagram, on Facebook, and on Twitter. Right, and that is World of Wellstar, all over the interwebs where you can find that. And once again, it is patreon.com slash Italian. 
I will put all of that information in the show notes, as well as all of the pertinent stats for this movie and where you can watch it, should you choose to. Um, A rage watch, a hate watch is not necessarily out of the question, although given the rating of this film on IMDb, I did not check Rotten Tomatoes, I did not check Letterboxd, but... It was inflated, I think, again, because people do enjoy Lon Chaney Jr. All right, I think that does wrap it up for episode 32, A Scream in the Night from 1935. Anything that I missed, Mike? Anything else to add? No, I think this was um, this was your movie to bear. This so I've, I've had I've had movies I've super hated. Uh, I didn't hate this one as much. I think partially because I just didn't. I think you watched it enough times to really learn to hate it. Like I think if I had to watch this three times or more, like you did, I, I probably would hate it too, as more. But uh, I, I just didn't enjoy it as much as I'd hoped. And uh, I appreciate you doing the work because that was not, um, that was not a small task, especially you being sensitive to audio and having to listen to that audio. But I know, take your pick, the random crowd noises of the aggravating parrot or whatever horrible slurs were being uttered in the background. Right. And usually subsequent watches of these movies, we watch it together. And early in the genesis of this show, we discussed doing a real-time commentary and just decided it was too difficult and it was easier to do this way because that would have been an editing nightmare uh, for me. And I usually have a better appreciation for a film on a subsequent watch because I notice more things. I notice the costumes. I notice the set changes. I notice subtle textures, how the actors clearly thought about their character and and did everything that they could to bring something good to it. This movie just really was really hard to find anything beyond some of the technical pieces like the split screen and the way I in particular the character of Johnny Fly just you knew from his first few seconds on film that he was a bad dude. I did appreciate those things but there was very little else to enjoy and having to watch things repeatedly in order to try to understand what happened you really shouldn't have to do that a rewatch can be fun a lot of times it is you catch a new thing this no it was literally just to try to figure out what was going on and to try to make some sense of it for myself and it was absolutely a slog so, yeah, so, hey, uh, the link to watch it is in the show notes, <laughs> should you so desire. <laughs> but, you know, obviously, when you look at any of these movies on YouTube, they are watched a lot. I do have some little, maybe big questions about how we, how much we can trust the viewership on any particular YouTube video, But at the same time, when you have these movies, because they are not under any copyright, so they can be put up by multiple people and they can be cut up and done all sorts of things to them. And of course, I take clips from them and insert them into these episodes. Even so, who who is watching this movie that many times? I really don't. I really don't understand. Okay. Uh, That'll be it for the complaining about a scream in the night. And thank you so much, Mike, for working up this character. I think that's probably the best thing 
about this entire situation. And thank you for listening, and we will see you next time. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening to 50 Date Night Screams. Be sure to check the show notes to learn where you can watch this movie for free. The quality isn't always the best when streaming, so we've also included a link to where you can purchase it. You can also get much more information, including the characters from this and all the 50 Date Night Screams episodes at betrayon.com slash Italian. Until next time, don't stop screaming. 50 Date Night Screams is a production of Mal and Tal Enterprises. It is written, produced, and directed by Amber and Mike Tresca. It can't all be gems. Oh, unless they're the Tierra Buddha, uh, you know, but... <laughs>